So we saw last week in the beginning of chapter 14 that Jesus says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And he says that to them because, of course, they were troubled and they had a lot to be troubled about. They, they knew that Jesus had said he was leaving. They saw Jesus troubled himself. They knew that Jesus had said that um, where he's going, they can't now come with him. And they knew that, that Jesus had said that their leader, so to speak, Peter, he was going to deny Jesus not once but three times. And so they had all these things that were weighing heavy on their hearts. And so when Jesus sees how heavy their hearts is, he, he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. And all the things he teaches them in, in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16 are really to, to teach them how they can live and how they can deal with their troubled hearts. Now, now of course, one of the things that really bothered them was the fact that Jesus says he's leaving, that he's going to not be with them. And they're grieved by this because they love Jesus, they want to be with Jesus. But they're also grieved by this because they rightly believe he's the Messiah, with him being God's chosen king, with the coming of God's chosen king comes the kingdom of God. And so they're troubled. They're wondering, okay, how can we be then in the kingdom of God? How can the kingdom of God continue if the king isn't with us? How can that be? We've seen what you've done, Lord. We've seen the goodness of who you are and what you can do, the goodness of your authority. We want to be under that authority, but if you're gone, if you're not with us anymore, how do we experience this? How do we... How can we be part of this? And so that's what he's going to begin to answer in these verses that we're looking at today. Now, I was just saying to somebody over the coffee break that I really wish I would have made up a chart because some of the things I want to talk about today are a little bit complex, especially in regards to the relationship of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ask you guys to be patient and really pay attention, maybe take some good notes. Feel free to ask questions afterwards. But also know this, we're going to talk a lot about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does over the next several weeks through this whole section of Scripture. But right now, what we really want to talk about in connection is, is both the Spirit and the Kingdom. What, what do we know about this? What, do we, what is Jesus saying about this? How, how does He want to comfort the disciples with these truths? That's what we want to look at, starting in verse 12. And so what we see in verse 12 is that he begins to, Jesus begins to outline what our work is in the kingdom. What's the work of believers in God's kingdom? He says, verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. It's a pretty staggering statement, isn't it? Jesus wants these guys to understand, listen, you need to know that you believe in me, there's going to be some great works that happen. But I want you to also notice something that's really plain. In fact, it's so plain, you might not recognize it. That he's saying, the works come after the believing. This is a really important truth. Because when, it, when we talk about works, sometimes what can happen is, especially if we're that kind of person that's driven and goal-oriented and likes the feeling of scratching something off your to-do list, you know, I'm one of those people. If you're one of those people, you want to think, yeah, what's the works? Tell me what to do. I want, I want to do some good stuff. Tell me what to do. But Jesus says this starts with believing. He, he wants the disciples to remember, listen, that the works that he's going to call them to, they're the result of being in right relationship with him, not the cause. In other words, doing the good works don't cause them to be in right relationship with him. Being in right relationship with him causes them to do the works. Believing leads to doing, not the other way around necessarily. This is a really important thing for us to understand. 
Because what God is after, what, what the reason God created the universe and man as the crowning creation of the universe is so that we could know Him. We could have a relationship with Him and it's a relationship that's based on trust. In fact, this is what he says when he says, believe in me. He's not just saying, when you have some intellectual assent to doctrines about me, no, but when you trust me. Now, we have to have a right understanding of who Jesus is. We've got to know who we're trusting, right? So, that, so the doctrine is really important. But that's not what he's asking. He's not just saying, understand these doctrines, because there's so much of who Jesus is they still didn't understand at this point. But he's saying, listen, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me that I'm going to do good things through you. You've got to believe. And this is what we see, that the pattern that we see in the New Testament, right? That God saves us not by our good works, but he does save us for good works. I've, I've read this verse so many times in so many versions. Hopefully you guys have these verses memorized by now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things, you could say good works, which you have done. So none of, the, none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Do you see the pattern there? Believing leads to doing. It's when we trust God for who He is, when we begin to come into a real relationship with our Creator through the person and work of Jesus Christ that we then begin to see, this was what I was made for. This is what I was created for and recreated for in Christ were the things that He has for us. So He's basically saying to him, He's beginning to answer the question by saying, I know you're worried about, you're troubled about what's going to happen to God's kingdom if the king isn't around. And He's saying, guess what? It's going to continue through you. I'm going to do a work through you. Then in verse 12, He continues to say this statement that's even more startling. He says, And greater works than these He will do because I go to my Father. Greater works. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that His people will do greater works than He did. Does that seem hard to believe? It's like, what, how, how, how can that be? I mean, I've never risen anybody from the dead. Never. I, I've prayed, yeah, not yet. I, I've prayed for hundreds of people to be healed, and I can count on one hand how many of them actually have been healed, like in a supernatural way. I, I have not done very many supernatural things. I've never had a flashy ministry. Jesus had thousands of people coming to him to hear. I've never had that. So what does he mean? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that he's not talking about that you're going to do even more flashier miracles than I did. Because really, even if you look at the book of Acts, even the apostles whom God was specifically doing, as it says about Paul, unusual miracles through, even them, they, they didn't have the kind of impact supernaturally that Jesus did when he was doing his works, showing he had the authority of God. But here's what we do see. Jesus' ministry is three and a half years, right? Three and a half years, mainly pouring into 12 people, but also preaching to thousands. But when his ministry is finished and he ascends to heaven, what's left? 120 people who are just waiting for a promise. So three and a half years of church planting, you might say, and, and he has 120 people waiting to see uh, what, what's going to happen next. Not bad, but what happens when God's Spirit descends on those 120 people? 
3,000 get saved in one day. Greater works than even Jesus did himself. See, this is the point. It's not about, listen, it's not about greater in quality. It's about greater in quantity. That the whole God, the gospel is going to go out to the whole world, not just the Roman Empire, the whole world, not just Galilee, not just Judea, but to Samaria and all the uttermost parts of the world. The whole world is going to hear the gospel through God's people. Greater works than Jesus even did himself. Again, what he's wanting these guys to understand is, listen, he's done a work that's just beginning. It's interesting. Luke, who wrote, of course, Luke's gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. Listen to how he starts the book of Acts. He starts the book of Acts by sort of reminding the, the reader, Theophilus, of the, the gospel of Luke. Luke, he says, listen, in my first book, I uh, told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus, notice, began to do and teach until the day he was taken up from heaven. Not just what Jesus did, but what he began to do. What's the implication there? The implication is, Theophilus, you're going to read the account of what, God's, what Jesus is continuing to do through his church. Why is it that Jesus can say to his people, he can say to these disciples who are just kind of troubled and feeling down and wondering what's going to happen, how can he say to them, you're going to do greater works than me? You know why? Because he's going to be doing the work through them. He's going to do the work through them. Now he goes on to say, in verse, oh, I should say this before I move on. He says, because I go to my Father. This is a really important thing. He's saying, this is going to happen because I'm ascending to heaven. Because I'm going to go to the Father. So this is, listen, Jesus is saying, these greater things are going to happen because of what's going to happen next. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Keep that in mind. So then he says, listen, here we are. Verse 13. He says, and, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that my Father may be glorified in the Son. And then, just in case you didn't hear, he says, says basically the same thing again. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I want you to think about this. If they're troubled about, how's God's kingdom going to continue if the king ascends back to, the, to heaven? How's that going to happen? If that's their concern, and Jesus is saying, you don't have to be concerned because you're going to do great works. Just trust me. Keep in good relationship with me. I'm going to do great works through you, greater works than I've even done myself. I'm going to do great works through you. Trust me. And then he says, here's how it's going to happen. Ready? Through prayer. Through prayer. But let's be honest. Do we really believe that? Think about how much effort. Let's just talk. I just want to talk right now just to every one of you who is, who is on team. Those of you who have already signed up and committed to serve on a team somehow. You're doing some sort of ministry, you know, ushers or music or children's ministry or something like that. Let me just talk to you guys on team, right? For the rest of you, we're going to give you a chance on the fourth Sunday, next Sunday, to sign up to be on team. There's a little plug for next week. But just for you who are already on team, let me talk to you. Think about the effort you put in to get ready. Maybe you're feeling guilty like it's not enough effort. That's okay. God can convict you. That's a good thing. But think about the effort you do put in to get ready for kids' ministry or the effort it takes to do ushering or to, to do hospitality or to be on the music team, the effort you put into that. Think about that. How much effort do you know I have to do this if, something, if I'm going to be ready to meet these needs? And think about how little we pray for those things. Why do we pray so little? 
because we actually believe something very strongly. We believe that our work is more effective than God's work. That's why we work much and pray little. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that with a big old beam sticking out of my eye, but just realizing this is not what Jesus said. When Jesus is trying to comfort his people, he's trying to say, listen, the kingdom's going to continue. He says, and here's the work that you need to do. Pray, ask me. How much, how much more motivating can you be to say, ask anything? I'll do it. Anything. Listen to this. Think about this. Jesus is wanting these guys to recognize there is no unwillingness in my part. Sometimes we treat prayer like we have to convince God that it's, the, it's, it's in his best interest to do what we want. Oh, please, God, please, God, please, God, do it. Please, God, please, God, do that. Oh, come on, God, please. I'll promise I'll do this. I promise I'll do that. And we're trying to overcome a reluctance that isn't there. God's not reluctant. Jesus is not reluctant to answer our prayers. When our prayers, listen, are about the kingdom. Didn't Jesus say back in Matthew chapter 6, the first sermon we looked at, Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the other stuff's going to be added to you. What, what, what does God want to do? I wonder, and, and please don't get me wrong, I, I spent a lot of time this morning thanking God for what he's, he's done in my life, for what he's already doing in Servants Church. I'm so thankful for you guys and the work of God's grace in your life. I see it and I go, man, God, you're so good. You're doing so much. How much more does God want to do in us and through us that we don't even, haven't even begun to think about or dream about because we just don't ask? We just don't believe that God really is going to use prayer that way. Uh, one of the books that we make our interns read is a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Anybody ever heard of that book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire? It's a book by uh, a pastor named Jim Simbola. He's a pastor of a Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. He's not a Calvary guy. He's what I call old school Pentecostal, the kind of guys that just love Jesus and love the word and know God's got to do what God's got to do. And this man wrote this book because he, he was asked by his father-in-law to take over this fledgling church that was dying in one of the most depraved areas of New York City in Brooklyn. And he realizes, I mean, he's not a very good preacher. He would, say he's not, he would say he's not a very good preacher. I think he's not bad, but he just thought, you know, God, if, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because you do it. So what has to happen is prayer. And they began to, they decided, they made a decision from the very beginning that they would measure the progress of their church based on who shows up to the prayer meetings. They said, people who show up on Sunday morning, that might show how popular the preacher is or the music team is. But people who show up to the prayer meetings, that shows who's, how popular Jesus is. So they have about five or 6,000 people to go to that church, and they, on their Tuesday night prayer meeting, have 2,000 people showing up to pray. Glory to pray. Why? Because they believe this. They believe that we can ask God to do stuff, and he will do stuff. Now, the truth is, listen, we need to understand something too, that when we are praying, we're not, we're not uh, having to, we're pursuing God's willingness, we're not creating God's willingness. It's a really important thing to understand. This, this idea that is propagated uh, on a lot of Christian television, unfortunately, this idea that your faith creates realities, that's a lie. 
No word you speak does anything to create anything. Only God can do that. So we're not creating realities. What we're doing when we're praying is clinging to Him who is real. To the promise that He's made to us. That His kingdom's going to advance when we're on our knees saying, God, would you do this? Praying specifically. You know, I've found that when I am praying, when I know that I'm really not just praying to, to pray, but actually praying, do you, do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes you're just, you're praying, but you're trying to pray until you pray. Does that make sense to you? You know what I'm saying? You're kind of just trying to get there. You know, like, okay, Lord, I, my head's in a billion different places, and he, oh, I forgot that thing. You put it on your to-do list, or whatever the case might be. Every distraction in the world is coming through your head when you're trying to pray. But you finally get to a place where you're actually praying. And I find when I'm actually praying, when I pray until I pray, that I realize how much needs to happen that only God can do. And how much, how important it is for us to pray. You know, it's so hard to get to prayer meetings. Have you noticed that? This might sound, you might not know this, but I have a hard time. I'm lucky to get once a month to the morning prayer thing here. And mainly it's because sometimes it's really hard for me to get everything I need done for my sermon on a Saturday night. So yesterday I was, I was finishing up. I finished actually my sermon on Friday, so I thought, okay, Saturday I'll go and I'll do the PowerPoint and I'll kind of review and put my notes in my Bible and I'll be totally done so that t- I can be there on time to pray. Man, it was like what should have taken two hours took like six. It felt like all hell was breaking loose in my office to keep me from being able to come here and pray in the morning. I was having to, to pray. Lord, help. I don't know why, why everything's going wrong with the computer. Nothing's working right. What's going on? I really believe it's because the enemy doesn't want me to pray. He doesn't want you to pray. I know that it's hard for for probably most of you guys to get to Friday morning. I do realize that. But I also realize some of you guys could get to Friday morning. We pray from 7, about 7, 7 7.15-ish to about 8, 8.30-ish. And you don't have to come for the whole time. You can pop in for half an hour and just jump in and pray. I know it's hard for everyone to get here a little bit early to pray, 9.45. But seriously, can I, I, mean, I mean this seriously. Do you think it would make a difference if we had to find a separate room, a bigger room for us to pray early? Can you imagine, listen, imagine if every single person who, whose week it wasn't to serve, who wasn't on the rota to already have a responsibility on a Sunday morning, right? They weren't doing music or ushers or whatever the case might be. But everyone else still said, you know, church starts at 9.45 when we pray for the service that God would do what he wants to do. Do you think something would change? Do you think God would change us? I believe he would. And I, don't, I promise you, I'm not saying this to condemn any of us. I'm just saying... What is the Lord offering us for comfort and for hope? He's saying to his disciples who are about to see him crucified in a matter of hours, they're going to see him beaten and crucified, and he's saying to them, there's going to to be great things that are going to take place. And all that's going to happen when you pray. Now, he says this, right? I'm going to, you know, pray, ask these things, I will do it. And then he, he says this thing in verse 15 that at first reading it seems like, well, how does this fit? He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What commandments? Well, he's already said in, in chapter 13, right? This is the commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is how all men will know you're my disciples, you love one another. I think Joe talked about that. 
But also, what command did he just, he did, did he just give us? Pray. It's like Jesus saying, do you love me? Then talk to me. <laughs> then ask me. Then cast your cares on me. But there's something else here too, because really, Jesus first, in the first section, we see him outlining the, our work in God's kingdom. But the second section, we're going to see him basically begin to talk about really introduce to us and to his disciples the ministry of God's Spirit. He's going to introduce them the ministry of God's Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. God's Spirit was working before this happened. God's Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. God's Spirit was already at work among the disciples. He's just going to explain that in a second. But there's a reality that there's something about a New Testament, a new covenant relationship to the Holy Spirit that these guys didn't understand yet. And the sad thing is, even this side of the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we still don't understand how we relate to the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says this in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, he's really you know, explaining or alliterating this reality that the first work of the Holy Spirit in saving us, the first result in God saving us is we love Him. We begin to love Him. Our affections change. I didn't grow up in the church at all. I didn't know anything about God or Jesus except that the, the only kind of connection I made was somehow God and guilt are connected. And actually God used that to get my attention. But that's the only connection I made. I had no, didn't really go to church, didn't know anything. But when God plucked me from the fire, and yes, I know I had a radical conversion experience, and that's not everyone's privilege, but still, when God plucked me from the fire, I knew I was His, and I wanted to know Him. I got saved October 4th, 1987. It'll be 30 years pretty soon. And I remember that first Christmas, 1987, that Christmas. I remember... We live in the desert, so it was never cold. So we had this, you ever seen that fake snow that people spray on their windows? It's really kind of tacky, but we had this fake snow. And we're, I was spraying this, spraying this fake snow, getting ready for Christmas on our windows, wearing shorts and a T-shirt, you know. <laughs> and, and I got this, and I was so excited about Christmas because I finally, for the first time in my life, understood who Christmas is about. And so I wrote in huge letters across the window, Happy Birthday Jesus. And my brothers thought I was smacked out of my head. But they let it stay out. I just, I, I knew it was him. I remember the day I got saved thinking, if I die today, I'm going to see him. See, God doesn't just save you to a, a set of principles or a new moral lifestyle. He saves you to himself. The first work of the Spirit is to show you you're so loved that you might go, wow, Lord, I want to love you back. So Jesus, when he says this, when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, he's talking about prayer, but he's also saying, he's hinting at them, look, recognize the work the Spirit's doing in you. The reason you love me is because the Spirit's opening your eyes to you. Remember, everyone didn't love Jesus. That's why in a few hours he's going to be crucified. He goes on to say, listen, verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. These are probably the two most important words in this whole section, another and helper. The word for another there, it's a very specific word in the Greek word because there's two words for another in the, in the Greek. This is the word that means another of the same kind. So in a very real sense, Jesus is saying, 
the Holy Spirit is similar to me, like me, but not me. Similar but separate. Another of the same kind. Now this is really, really important because what do we know about Jesus? We know that Jesus is God the Son. He is both humanity and deity, right? We understand this about Jesus. What does this mean about the Spirit? The Spirit is God the Spirit. He, is, he has both personhood, not humanity, but personhood, and He's deity. Now, now, we have to understand this about God. God is Spirit, but God also is a person. Again, not human, though He became a human, but a person. Stay with me. The Bible's really clear that the Holy Spirit, listen, has feelings, makes choices, does works, is the creator. The Holy Spirit is, is given all the attributes of God the Father and God the Son, but is not God the Father or God the Son. It's the mystery of this trinity, this tri- triune God that we worship. The reason this is important is this. We often relate to the Holy Spirit as a force. The Holy Spirit is, is this power that surges through the congregation if we can flip the right switch. But He's not a force. That's Star Wars. It's not Bible. He's a person. He is a person. So when Jesus says, another helper, another of the same kind, he's saying, listen, this helper has, this has personhood like I do. This is God the Spirit he's wanting to introduce them to. But also, listen, when he says helper, at least the New King James says helper, some uh, versions say comforter. But it's interesting, this also can be translated, in fact, it is translated, this word advocate. It's in uh, 1 John 2.1, says this, My dear children, I write this to you, that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is kind of like a defense attorney in a legal sense. It's, this, it's the person that did that is working to get you off your guilty plea or your guilty uh, accusation. He's really to get you free, to set you free, to see you be free in the eyes of the law. He's your advocate. He's defending you against the accusations made against you, okay? Now, it's important, though, that we recognize even that the word advocate is rightly translated there, advocate in 1 John 2, okay? It's also rightly translated helper or comforter in John's gospel, because advocate, you can, have, you can have an advocate that you have no relationship with, okay, who can kind of set you, help you get free as, as in regards to the law. But Jesus is more than that. The Holy Spirit is more than that. He's not just someone who's, who's going to speak in your defense or speak things to you. He's also one, listen, that wants to bring comfort and help. So when, when Jesus says these things and when the translators write these things this way, the, 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 the message they're trying to get to us is this is somebody who's going to do something important for us that we're meant to have a relationship with. Just like they did with Jesus. It's important that we see this. The fruit of His Spirit is love. And the nature of His Spirit is personal. God's Spirit is personal. He's someone we have a relationship with. This is so important. 
If we don't get this, you're going to go off in other areas. I, I, I hate to be nitpicky. You, you know those kind of people that, that correct your grammar all the time? It's annoying, isn't it? Yeah? I do that theologically to people. I know, it's annoying. I, I'm sorry if I've done it to you. I probably have. But when I hear people say, you know, the Holy Spirit, when it showed up, I'm like, it, no, 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 him, him, not it, him. Him, we relate to him. Jesus wants us to see this. Now, again, we're going to talk more about this throughout the, the, the rest of these next couple chapters, but I want you to look at verse 17, or the second half of verse uh, 16, sorry. He says that he will, the Father will send, this is a gift from the Father, this Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Notice that he may abide with you forever. So in Jesus introducing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, you need to understand the fruit of the Spirit is love. He's going to give you love uh, for me and love for others. You need to understand that the nature of His Spirit is, is personal, but also you need to understand that your relationship to His Spirit, to God's Spirit, is permanent. One of the reasons I don't agree with my brothers and sisters who think that there's a place where you can lose your salvation is because of verses like this. Now, there are my brothers and sisters. We can agree to disagree, but I don't agree with them because I think that when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will remain with you permanently, that says something to me. To remain with you permanently is to remain with you permanently especially when we see the other sort of prepositions Jesus uses to explain our relationship with the Holy Spirit. But we have this permanent relationship. In fact, you might say this, God's Spirit, you can grieve God's Spirit, but God's Spirit will never leave you. He will grieve, but He will not leave. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He, that's the Holy Spirit, has identified you as His own, guaranteed that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Do you see the connection there? Hey, don't grieve Him, which means you can grieve Him. We can grieve the Spirit. When we treat other people as less than they are, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we fail to love the brethren, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we speak things that aren't right, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But He never leaves us. He never leaves us. He's always with us. This is why Jesus could say, I will never leave you. But wait, you ascended to heaven, how can that be? Because the Spirit dwells with us permanently. Now, he goes on to say, listen, verse 17, he calls him the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, nor, nor knows him. So this, when he talks about God's spirit, it's not just a permanent relationship, it's a relationship where he's revealing truth to us. Now, we're going to talk more about this as we move on. I don't want to get too much into that today because there's a lot that we're going to unpack in the rest of chapter 14 and then 15 and 16. But just know this. God's Spirit reveals truth to us, but He doesn't do that outside of Scripture. He, he might take Scripture and apply it specifically, or He might lead us in a direction, but that direction will never contradict what God has already said in His Word. You can read John 17, 17. We'll get to that in the, in the future where Jesus says, sanctify them, He's talking about His people, by your truth, your Word is truth. That's why the Bible calls, that's why Paul calls the Scripture the sword of the Spirit. 
but he leads you in all truth. You know what else this means? Because he's the spirit of truth, guess what he values? Truth. You know what that means? Truth here is, again, not just concepts that are more uh, true than some other concepts or more evidenced than other concepts. Truth here, listen, is the idea of nothing held back, nothing hidden, all revealed. So when, we, when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, you know that he values? He values us not holding back. One of the reasons why it takes so long for us to actually pray, you know, we have to pray until we pray, he says we're just not honest before God. I was in a, just a horribly foul mood. I feel like I confess that every week. I was in a horribly foul mood yesterday. I won't say why, but I was in a really bad mood. And Sarah was, came into the room I was in and tried to cheer me up. And I said, babe, I'm just in a bad mood. Just give me some space. Just in a bad mood. And at I, I, first, I just tried to pray, God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be in such a bad mood. And then just felt even more frustrated. And finally, I just said, God, I'm in a bad mood. And this is why. I know it's wrong, but I feel like boom, 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 and boom. You should have done this, and why didn't you do this, and boom, boom, boom. And as soon as I just let it all out, I could say, Lord, and that's all sin. (laughs) And, you know, please forgive me and wash me clean. Please give me your perspective on this. But it didn't happen until I could be honest with him. Full disclosure. He's a spirit of truth. He values that. Do you really think God doesn't know what's going on in your heart? Really? Really? How stupid it is when we put on this religious facade, whether it's in public or in private. How foolish. It's not honoring to God. It's not respecting God. It's disrespecting God because you're treating him as if he's not omniscient, as if he doesn't know everything. No, what we need to do is be honest. God, I don't feel like worshiping you today. And it's a horrible attitude. I know it's bad. I don't feel like it. So help me. Because I'm going to worship you even if I don't feel like it. So Lord, would you do a work to help me feel like it? Because I know you're worthy of that. He's the spirit of truth. But also, listen, he says, he goes on to say, even though the world doesn't know the spirit, doesn't recognize who the spirit is or what the spirit's doing, he says to his disciples, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Recognize those prepositions, with, in, really important. He's saying to them, you know him, you've you've related to him. How? Because when, when Jesus, listen, when Jesus was ministering to them and their hearts are burning by what he's saying and what they see him doing, guess who's burning up their hearts? God's Spirit. God's Spirit is testifying to these men, this is indeed the Messiah. You need to trust Him. Jesus is God's chosen King. you got to trust Him. The Holy Spirit's doing that work. And so Jesus is going, you know them. He's been telling you to trust me this whole time. Now, I love this because it shows us one of the ways we relate to the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit relates to us by what? Pointing us to Jesus. He shows us our need for Jesus. We'll talk about that in John chapter 16. He shows us the sufficiency of who Jesus is and what he's done. That also we talked about in John chapter 16. He points us to Jesus. In fact, some theologians talk about the shyness of the Holy Spirit. The fact that he doesn't point to himself. 
which is why a lot of Christians don't feel comfortable actually praying to the Holy Spirit because we don't see in Scripture where people prayed to the Holy Spirit and they think, well, the Holy Spirit wants to point to Jesus, so should we pray to the Holy Spirit? I don't think it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit, but I'm just saying that's where that comes from because the Holy Spirit always wants to point us to Jesus, just like Jesus always wants us to trust the Father. No, 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 stay with me, stay with me. I know this is getting kind of deep. But this is really important because he says, he dwells with you. He's there telling you you need to trust me. But listen, he says, and will be in you. Now, when you connect that, the fact that, that we are going to be, as, or, or he's saying to the disciples, there's gonna come a time soon when the Holy Spirit will actually indwell you. You have to connect that to the other promise. He will abide with you forever. Because the difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint is in the Old Testament, we really only see the Holy Spirit working on prophets, priests, and kings. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit's working on anybody who believes, and people always had faith in the Old Testament, right? But one of the differences is, in the New Testament, in other words, because of what Jesus has done, we're not just people whom the Holy Spirit visits and comes alongside, but whom He indwells. That you actually become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, this is really important because this is the difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who isn't. Someone who belongs to God and someone who doesn't. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. should be on the screen. It says this. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, that's really a lot of deep stuff here, but try to stay with me, okay? The verse is going to stay on the screen. Try to stay with me. Notice he says, the Spirit of God, and in the, same se- in the next sentence says, the Spirit of Christ. Which is it? Is the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ? The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, it's both. We, have, we worship one God, not three. Notice also he says... Uh, And if Christ is in you, how is Christ in me? Is there like a little Jesus in my heart somehow? How does that work? Through the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in me. That's why I can say Christ is in me. That's why it's not wrong when people say, I asked Jesus into my heart. It's really not wrong. People bag on it, but it's not really wrong. We're basically saying, Lord, come and dwell me. Live in my life. He does through his Holy Spirit. But also notice this. Listen, he says, if this isn't the case, if you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit... If Christ isn't in you, you're not his. This is also important because when we talk about the last way we relate to the Holy Spirit, you need to understand this, okay? This is talking about indwelling. This is talking about what Jesus meant by, in in John chapter 3, being born again, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. When God, the Spirit, comes alongside and shows us that we need Jesus and says you need to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus, you, you are lost without Jesus. And we cry out, God, save me. When he saves us, he comes and dwells in us by his Holy Spirit to stay there forever to finish his work. This is important. Because this is, this is how you walk with God. This is, why, this is why Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3. You guys remember this? When Paul says to the Galatians, are you so foolish? Haven't begun in the Spirit? Are you going to be perfected by the flesh? In other words, if God's Spirit started this work in you and gave you new life because of Jesus, do you think you're going to finish the work? 
Are you going to say, thanks, Lord, for giving me this start? I'll take it from here. But we do that all the time. That's part of what our prayerlessness is. No, he's saying, Jesus is saying, guys, don't you know, he's going to dwell in you like prophets, priests, and kings, even though you're just 12 bonehead fishermen, or 11 at this point. He's going to dwell in you the way he only did in certain people, but he will never leave you the way they knew he could leave them, the way he left Saul. Why? Because the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus guarantees what Paul says here, righteousness. The Spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. Not your righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness makes you a vessel worthy for God himself to dwell in. Can I ask you a question? If I stood up here right now and I said, whew, rough morning, I got hit by a car. One of those big, huge, double-decker buses just 30 miles an hour smacked me. Whew, that was rough. Would you believe me? If I'm standing just the way I am right now, would you believe me? That doesn't fit right. You know why? Because you knew if I got hit by a bus, there'd be, you could see it. You know, my head would be flatter than it is now. You'd be able to know. If God saves you, cleanses you from all unrighteousness and declares you righteous and indwells you, should people be able to know? Should you be able to know? See, Jesus is wanting these guys to know, listen, I am leaving and I know you're sad and I know your hearts are troubled, but guess what? My kingdom's going to continue. You know why? Because my spirit's going to keep working. He's going to work in you. And, listen, he's going to work through you. You see, there's another, he's another uh, proposition that he uses, preposition, sorry, that he uses. It's this preposition coming upon, look at Acts 1.8, it actually should be on the screen, so skip 1 Corinthians, go to Acts 1.8. Jesus says to his disciples, right before he ascends, he says to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon, another preposition, comes upon, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Now, the coming upon power of the Spirit is the, often the most misunderstood and most controversial aspect of us relating to God. This is what happens. Only believers can experience the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. In a New Testament sense, only those who are born again can experience the coming upon of the Spirit. There's debates about the first time that this was experienced. Everyone believes it was at Pentecost, but was at Pentecost when they were first indwelt by the Spirit and then the Spirit came upon? Or was John chapter 20 when the disciples were indwelt by the Spirit and then the Spirit came upon? They debate about that, but everyone believes Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, I want to read to you a couple of verses, and then I want to spend the last maybe five minutes or so talking about this a little bit. Jesus says this in John chapter 7. He says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those in believing in him would receive Notice, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he hadn't ascended yet. So Jesus says, 
he says to these people at this festival, here's what you can experience if you put your faith in me. If you're in right relationship with God through me, you can experience the Holy Spirit working in you in a sense that he comes out, he flows out. Not a little spray bottle, but rivers of living water. Now, now let me explain something to you really quick. I got five minutes, you guys can really pay attention. Help me out. What happens is that we as Christians, specifically we as evangelical Christians, we tend to only focus on one aspect of our relationship to the Holy Spirit. And it has to do with these different prepositions. We either focus on the reality of Him coming alongside. You have churches that just focus on the Holy Spirit coming alongside. And they emphasize the convicting work of the Spirit. God convicts you of sin. God calls you to believe. God does that work. And so their messages are about, we want to see the Holy Spirit move. We want to see everybody feel really bad and be really broken because that's when the Holy Spirit moves. Now that's not wrong, but that's just one part. Others focus just on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it glorious God dwells in us? You can walk with God because the power of the Spirit dwells in you. So enjoy God, experience God, walk with God. Produce the fruit of the Spirit. See, God's, God produced that in your life, and they emphasize love. That's a good thing. But that's just one part. Others emphasize this coming upon Hey, man, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stuff happens. You, you speak in a language you don't know naturally. You prophesy. You say things about people that you couldn't have known naturally. These radical things happen. People get healed when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so they emphasize that aspect of the Holy Spirit. Can you see where I'm going with this? Can you see what can happen when we just, we relate to God, we relate to the Holy Spirit in just one of these three ways? Can you see how we can get, be off balance? To relate to the Holy Spirit is to be doing what Jesus says. Lord, I want this to be about your kingdom. Because it's about your kingdom, I want to live in holiness. You've called me to holiness. I'm going to live in holiness. So I'm going to let the Holy Spirit expose the stuff in me that needs to be exposed and convict me and show me where I need to turn from my sin. But also, Lord, I know that you dwell in me. So I want to relate to you in a way that honors that kind of intimacy that I'm actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God, you dwell with me, so everywhere I go, you go, and I want to relate to you and follow you with that sort of intimate holiness and love. But also, Lord, you've called me on mission. You've called me to go and make disciples who can make disciples, and you said to your disciples, they ain't going to be able to do that unless they wait for the power of the Spirit, so I need you to come upon me. Do you notice what it said, out of your heart? Think about it this way. To be filled with the Spirit is not just like the Holy Spirit comes from the outside. To be filled with the Spirit is the Holy Spirit overflowing you. Sometimes we pray, God, give me more of the Spirit. You can't have more of the Spirit. He's not a source. He's not a supply. He's not a thing. He's a person. But we can say, Lord, have more of me. Overflow me. God, I believe that you have me and that you indwell me, so overflow me and use me because I want to see your kingdom move forward. Now, this begs the question, how are we relating to God's spirit? See, one of the things that, some of the things that scriptures say about our relationship with God's spirit 
I think it was Peter who says to the Jews in the first part of the book of Acts, he says, you always resist the Spirit. And basically he's saying to them, he's saying, listen, you're so blinded by your own religiosity, you just, you resist the Spirit. They wouldn't believe in Jesus. And, and I want to humbly exhort you, if you're here this morning and you're resisting that work of the Spirit that is saying, put your trust in Christ alone. Stop resisting the Spirit. It's not me convincing you that you need to believe this. That pounding of your heart, that nervousness that you feel that, oh no, I'm caught, is the Holy Spirit saying, you are caught. I see you. But he also says, God wants you. He proved it by sending Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Don't resist the Spirit. The Bible says we can also grieve the Spirit. We just read it, didn't we? We can grieve the Spirit by disobeying the things that God tells us to do by not following Jesus. And this is the thing. The more we disobey God, the more we grieve the Spirit, the less we're able to hear from Him. We, our ears grow deaf. Our hearts grow insensitive. So maybe what you need to do today Again, I want to humbly exhort you, if you're today and God's beginning to put his finger on where you're grieving him, let him press as hard as he wants. Come on. And say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for grieving you. And thank you for the promise with that. You never leave me nor forsake me. Or maybe you're in a place where you have no heart for those that are lost. You hardly think about people around you that don't know the Lord. And if you do, you don't really pray or prepare. Or if you do do stuff, you do it on your own strength and it fails and you kind of go, what's the point? And maybe God's saying, you know, you need to wait on me that I might fill you with my Holy Spirit that you might be my witnesses. Because it's not us who can do it. It's got to be the Lord who does it.